Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hi, so this week we'll be talking to political columnist Stephanie Grace about the governor's race, which is starting to come into focus a little bit. Uh, We'll be talking to Feynman Roberts, our Jefferson Parish reporter, about the surprising defeat of Jefferson Parish School Board member Cedric Floyd in Saturday's election, and we'll check in with music critic Keith Spira about what we might expect at this year's 50th anniversary Jazz Fest. Uh, First up is Stephanie. Steph, thanks for joining us. Thanks. So um, we talked about the governor's race a little bit last week uh, with John Kennedy's surprising to me at least decision not to run not so surprising to stephanie and uh we had some more developments this week and it sort of feels like this thing is starting to congeal a little bit to me but um we had you know the biggest news i guess this week was the entrance of uh, ralph abraham the congressman from the monroe area so now we've got a field that includes of course john bell edwards the democratic incumbent and we have uh we have abraham and we have this businessman eddie Rasponi from baton rouge so so what do we know about these two challengers so far well they're both republican obviously and like last time it's an open primary so the first question is do they both attack john bell edwards or do they attack each other for the right to run against john bell edwards i think you have to start from the premise that John Bell Edwards could get over 50%. Yeah. And, and there might not even be a runoff, which was not the case last time. Last time, of course, we had three main Republicans, David Vitter, Scott Angel, and Jay Darden. And they really tore each other apart because they were just assuming that whichever one got into a runoff against the one Democrat, John Bell Edwards, would win because Republicans generally win in Louisiana. And of course, there's no danger that time of uh, of John Bell Edwards winning the whole thing. Of course, yes. Right. Now, this time, that's a little bit different. If you look at his poll numbers, I think you have to say it's a possibility. He generally polls around or even a little above 50%. Even in one poll I've seen where he was in the very high 40s, his approval rating was still way higher than his disapproval rating. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the starting point. So in this case, maybe it behooves these guys to attack John Bell Edwards instead of each other. Is and that- try to kind of knock his positive, the, the positive pollsters would say to knock his positives down. But it's, the idea is to... Make sure he doesn't get 50%. Right. To, if people feel good about him, remind him, hey, he raised taxes. He's uh, a Democrat. He's a Democrat. He supported Hillary Clinton, even though, frankly, he's become pretty close to Donald Trump. Right. Speaking of, um, maybe we should listen to a little sound. We haven't really heard anything from uh, Eddie Rasponi yet, but maybe this would be a good time to listen to. This is an ad that uh, Ralph Abraham made for his recent successful run for Congress, but it gives you a little bit of an idea of who he is. I'm a Christian, and my faith in Christ guides everything I do. I've been married to my wife, Diane, for 43 years with three children and nine grandchildren. Being raised on a farm, I've been breaking horses and building fences my entire life. So going to LSU Veterinary School just seemed natural. I consider it an honor and a privilege to have served my country. Since I was first elected, I have stood up for conservative Louisiana values. I supported President Trump from day one, and I still do. 
So uh, clearly he's trying to use the Trump card as well. Trump, of course, uh, got roughly 60% of the vote in Louisiana. A little less than that, yes. uh, Most votes are the highest percentage ever for a candidate or was it the The most The highest absolute number. Highest absolute number. About the same percentage as other Republicans, Mitt Romney, John McCain. Gotcha. That's kind of the baseline for Republicans in a national race in Louisiana. And, And you wrote a little bit about this. Maybe this would be a good time to talk about. You wrote on Sunday about how governor's races... Uh, are a little bit different from national races from your perspective. Right. Um, that number, that high 50% number, fifty, you know, say 55 to 60%, that is the number that Republicans tend to get if they are running for a national office in Louisiana. President, also Senate. Mm-hmm. Because increasingly, these Senate races have become really referenda on the national parties. It's somebody going off to Washington and they'll support the president or they'll oppose the president. They'll support Mitch McConnell or they'll support Chuck Schumer. And this is a theme we've seen over and over again in Louisiana Senate races, most recently the really or really strong most strongly probably when Bill Cassidy beat Mary Landrieu. Right. We also saw it when David Vitter was able to beat Charlie Melanson, despite the fact that he had just had this prostitution scandal. Right. He'd kind of said Easily Obama, won. Obama, Obama, right. and he won. And that was sort of Cassidy's message too. And Mary Landrieu yes. was a reasonably popular Democrat who was with a long track record of right. really delivering for the state and right. had been reelected twice before, but it probably it was a matter of time and right. this was her time. So in you, in your thesis is that in the governor's races, people are they, the politics aren't as nationalized, and they are able to they're paying enough attention, hopefully that they're right. able to form their own opinion about the person. Right, and I, I I would say that those kind of Republican Democrat numbers sometimes hold with lower level offices. We saw it in the Secretary of State's race this weekend, where if people don't know that much about the candidate, they might kind of default to I'll vote for the Republican, I'll vote for the Democrat. Right, that was a very low visibility race right. where you saw almost no outreach from right. either candidate, or at least I didn't see much evidence of a campaign. And so. really not much interest from voters, right. frankly. Right. Um, voters are very interested in who their governor is, and they really do seem to look at the personal characteristics of that person. And I think we definitely did see that with John Bell Edwards. It's interesting to hear that clip from Ralph Abraham, because some of those things he's talking about could be John Bell Edwards, too. Right. I mean, it almost sounded like he's trying to blunt John John Bell Edwards. Uh, what, you know, he's got the military service right. and he's got the, the family religion, man, the long marriage. You know, yeah. The, yeah. Um, but it's it's, of course, maybe it's more important in Louisiana for a Democrat to establish those things than a Republican, although it doesn't hurt anybody, I suppose. Correct. And John Bell Edwards at this point has very well established those things. Right. So people voted for him last time. Again, if it, if it were a party referendum, David Vitter would have won. Right. So it wasn't. And that, I think, isn't so different from what's happening in some other governor races around the country. You've seen some examples of Republicans, moderate Republicans, do very well in Democratic states, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, Maryland. You've seen some examples of Democrats win very Republican states. Right. And... I think Louisiana is one of them. Another one is Kansas. Mm -hmm. And those are some interesting examples because what the previous Republican governors, Bobby Jindal in our case, ran as a Republican, did Republican things, Mm -hmm. specifically with the budget. Right. And Republican voters rebelled. They thought he went a little too far. They thought he went too far with the cuts. So, And the same thing happened with Sam Brown back in Kansas. In Kansas. And now there's a Democratic governor. So I think with governor races, not only is it – do people maybe – focus a little more on the person and less on the national politics. 
but also maybe this is the place where they kind of look for some moderation. Right, right. Now, looking ahead, I mean, it's obviously there's plenty of time for someone else to still get in, but it, it sort of seems like candidates have been making a decision one way or the other, potential candidates. And we had uh, John Schroeder, the right. treasurer, who was flirting with this publicly. He announced today that he was uh, that he was not running. The only sort of semi-prominent person I'm aware of who's still flirting with a run is State Senator Sharon Hewitt from Slidell. And she'd be another credible candidate, but right. starting off with relatively little name recognition and little money. So she'd be sort of a, a little bit of a long shot, maybe a longer shot than either Eddie Rasponi, who has plenty of money, right. or Ralph Abraham, who doesn't have a lot of money, but who has a congressional seat that he's right. running from. Right. And Sharon Hewitt has an interesting profile, mm-hmm. so that would help her, obviously, being a woman and a former former oil executive, someone who has made some waves in kind of national policy circles. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. It, it could happen. The, the real question for me is, are people inclined to look at John Bell Edwards and say, I don't want that, I want something else? Or are they okay with what they have? Because we really do tend to reelect governors in this state. Right. Unless it's Buddy Romer, which was a special case. And then Kathleen Blanco, of course, didn't run after Katrina. That was a special case. Right, right. In general, the shifts like tend to be. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And mayors, really. Yeah. The, yeah. Shifts, the cycle tends to be eight years more than four years. Right. Well, uh, we'll uh, be watching this closely for new developments. Um, but it looks like this thing is starting to take shape. Mm-hmm. And uh, thanks for coming by today, Steph. And okay, thank you. Sure. More to come. All right, joining us now is Feynman Roberts, who covers uh, Jefferson Parish for The Advocate. Uh, thanks for coming by, Feynman. Yeah, great to be here, Gordon. So, Feynman, you covered the elections on Saturday, kind of a low-interest, low-turnout affair, but actually some significant races in Jefferson Parish, including three uh, races, runoff races in the Jefferson Parish School Board. What 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 happened on Saturday? Yeah, they uh, certainly were. Yeah, they uh, they certainly were. Uh, closely watch elections, at least by school board and political aficionados. You had three runoffs, uh, three incumbents, all seeking re-election to the board. Two of them achieved that without too much problem. Ricky Johnson and Tiffany Kuhn in districts two and three, those are two West Bank districts, uh, achieved uh, re-election without too much difficulty. I think both of them got over 70% of the vote. The more interesting race was in district five, where two-term incumbent Cedric Floyd, who is as you know, a, a very controversial member of the school board, lost his bid for re-election. And he didn't just lose it. He only got 37% of the vote, which is pretty shocking. He got 43% in the general election in November, but wow. only 37 in the runoff against Simeon Floyd, a political newcomer. Huh. So in this, Cedric, as you said, has been, uh, he's been a made a lot of headlines over the years, kind of a lightning rod on that board. And, and in previous jobs, too, as CAO of Kenner, I believe, he yep. also made a lot of headlines. Maybe we should start by listening to a little sound of, of Cedric, and then you can talk about what, what kind of a school board member he was. For all employees, expand early childhood. That's the things what a school board member does, not the things they're talking about. Um, when you see me at the school board meeting, that's the judgment of a school board member getting things done. Unlike they say, I have the best and the longest record of any school board member over the last four years getting things done. That means five votes. From bringing back collective bargaining, authoring legislation for free vision and dental. 
So this is a guy who, um, among other things, he'd see himself as a as a champion of the employees and was, you know, a big supporter of the of the teachers union, right? Yes, yeah, he absolutely was, yeah. But that's not all he was. I mean, what what? Tell us a little more about him. Oh, it's it's hard to characterize Cedric quickly. He is uh, a very combative, uh, oftentimes just pugnacious school board member. He picked a lot of fights. He fought with his school board colleagues. He fought with administrators. He fought with just about anybody who would fight. I mean, he certainly has insulted me on a number of occasions. Um, But Cedric also was a very wily political operator at times. There is no questioning that when he uh, set his full mind to getting something accomplished, he uh, oftentimes was able to do it, even with reluctant colleagues. He sometimes dragged a reluctant board with him. Um, and that was sort of who Cedric is. He's, uh, he's a fascinating character, honestly, um, but one that many of his colleagues are very happy to see off the board. Uh-huh. Now, I guess in terms of a couple of examples of things he was able to do, he, he was instrumental in bringing the prior superintendent yeah. on board, right? Isaac Joseph. Right. And then he was instrumental in getting uh, a millage increase on the ballot, right. uh, which narrowly failed. Yeah, it, that the millage increase, he... he and this was for teacher raises. Correct? Right. He pushed one through in 2017, pushed it through the board. There was, it was no secret that several board members did not want to put a tax on the ballot before the voters, but Cedric did. And so he, uh, by phrasing it as a pro or anti-teacher vote, he put an 8.45 mil tax on uh, the November 2017 ballot, it failed by less than 500 votes out of 41,000 wow. casts. So it was it was close. And and by the way, to go back to the other thing you said, yeah, he was absolutely instrumental in bringing in Isaac Joseph, the system's first African American superintendent who was appointed. They'd had an interim superintendent before that who was African American. Cedric was also instrumental in getting Isaac Joseph <laughs> fired uh, right. less than three years later. So. Uh, that's definitely a two-sided coin uh, in Cedric's accomplishments. And he's been, in, there's been litigation around him and things like that as well. Right. A, a 2015, in 2015, there was an employee of the school system. She was um, sort of working for the school board. Uh, Cedric was the school board president at the time. She felt like some of his behavior was harassment. Now, not sexual harassment, gender-based harassment, to be clear. Um, Cedric bombarded her with texts and phone calls. Like and, micromanaging kind of harassment. Yes. I mean, and just and just absolutely the sort of things that people should not have said to them at work. Like, I can't beat you up for this right now. You know, he was insulting. He demeaned her work. One time he was on the phone. She put him on speakerphone. Other employees could hear him yelling and became afraid that an angry parent was loose in the building. And they initiated lockdown procedures. She sued the school system and the school system commissioned a report, which the board refused to hear back in 2015 and 2016. Uh, It came out after we published it, actually. Um, But the board recently settled that suit for $60,000. And currently, a second similar suit is working its way through the court system. I think there's a move to settle that one Hmm. as well. So so he's got this firebrand side, which has occasionally gotten him into hot water. But he's also been a visible representative of the pro-teacher union faction on the school board. And, And more broadly, the Jefferson Parish School Board has been divided in recent years between sort of a chamber of commerce pro-business side and a and a pro-teacher union right. side 
Um, and which walk us through real briefly how that has how that fight has gone. I mean, right. Well, for the previous two election cycles in 2010 and 2014, the school board elections in Jefferson Parish were knockdown, dragout fights between uh, union interests, the Jefferson Federation of Teachers specifically, and business-based interests in the parish, whether it be the uh, the Jefferson Business Council or the Jefferson Chamber. Uh, in 2010, those those fights were won by the pro-business side, and they brought in a pro-business superintendent, James Meza. Four years later, Meza was already already gone, but the election uh, went in favor of the union-backed candidates. Um, Cedric Floyd was already on the board. He won re-election in 2014, but he became the board president in 2015, which eventually led to the uh, the lawsuit we just mentioned a moment ago. And the so, introduction of Isaac Joseph came right, with that board. And right, then, okay. and they brought in Isaac Joseph, and then that same board, less than four years later, got rid of Isaac Joseph. And, and now we have Cade Brumley, right. and, and now the board is split maybe more on it's more about how you stand on Cade Brumley than whether you're pro or anti-union. Or yeah, well, say? it's it's sort of fair to say that the hard union business split is not as strong as it once was. In this 2018 election, there were two candidates uh, in District 1 and in uh, oh, District 3 um, that were endorsed by both the union and the Chamber of Commerce PAC. And so you, you don't have this sort of hard divide that you do. It's still a dynamic that exists, um, but a lot of the support, both union and business, has coalesced behind Brumley, who was brought in in March of this year and has won plaudits on all sides so far for his handling of the school system. And Brumley came from a small school system in northwest Louisiana to the uh, state's DeSoto largest. DeSoto Parish, right? Yeah, DeSoto Parish. All and right. uh, and he's a young guy. He's uh, 37 or 38 years old, but has made a lot of friends and, and been very impressed. So even though it, it, you can't say that the board dynamic right now is divided on Brumley, necessarily because right now he has a lot of supporters it's mostly pro Brumley. that's right so but, he, far. but he's sort of the unifying he's what it all sort of revolves right. around he's the dynamic that sort uh, of altered the, gotcha. the flavor of this election which could say. change if he loses his popularity but right. for now he's sort of keeping this thing together he launches some anti-business or non-business friendly or non-union friendly policy and all of a sudden we could be right back where we started okay well, uh, we'll keep watching that school board. Um, thanks for helping us understand it a little better, Feynman, and uh, come see us again soon. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. All right. This now is uh, Keith Spira, the music writer for The Advocate. Uh, Keith, uh, you've been watching pretty closely to see who might, uh, who the big acts are going to be this Jazz Fest, the 50th anniversary Jazz Fest. Uh, lots of rumors out there. Of course, we just heard a little snippet of the Rolling Stones playing in Dublin earlier this year. I guess they're they're the biggest name and the worst kept secret here, but they they're not confirmed yet. But what what do you what do you make of the chances that the Stones are going to show up at this? Well, I tell you, I mean, it, there are a lot of clues that seem pretty convincing uh, right up until Mick Jagger mentioning New Orleans in a little song he posted online where he was listing all the cities on the upcoming tour's itinerary, and he sang New Orleans. 
And there's a very convenient slot in the schedule between shows in Houston and Arizona where it'd be very easy <laughs> for them to pop over here and do a show at, uh, at Jazz Fest on that second Thursday, May 2nd. But as you said, nothing's official until Jazz Fest says it is. And, you know, I've seen these sorts of things. They seem confirmed. They are more or less confirmed, and then they fall apart right at the last minute for any number of reasons. So, um, Like money, for instance? Yeah, like money or, you know, something else with the scheduling comes up or there's some, you know, the artist wakes up and decides they don't want to perform in daylight or something crazy, right. you know. Because, like, I mean, it, that's a consideration. Right. I mean, a lot of bands don't like to do daylight outdoor shows because they like to have the lights and they like to have the production and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, that's like a real fact. I mean, it, so the reason it took Tom Petty so long to play at Jazz Fest because he never wanted to play without his like lights and all that sort of That's stuff. Interesting. So. I guess when you get to be the age of the Stones, too, you have to worry about. I mean, health concerns become a serious thing. I mean, I saw in your <laughs> in your column looking at the possibilities here. You mentioned Bob Seger missed last year for he was going to play and he had back surgery. Correct. I mean, but Correct. when you're 70, these guys are, some of these guys are pushing 80 now, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, when you have a group of men in their 70s, I mean, yeah, things happen. I mean, uh, so there's always the possibility that something could go wrong. But they, the Stones especially seem to, seem to have consumed some sort of elixir, elixir <laughs> of youth. Uh, you know, Keith Richards obviously has done something. Um, Deal with the devil. Yeah, so, I mean, these guys have proved to be remarkably hardy and durable. I saw them a couple years ago. 2016 at the Desert Trip Festival in California. It was them and Paul McCartney and Roger Waters and The Who and Bob Dylan and Neil Young. And the Stones were really good. I mean, they were a scruffy rock and roll band. They've not gone the route of, uh, you know, prettying things up and Mm -hmm. having tracks and and polishing it all. This sort of stuff. They are what they've always been, which Mm -hmm. is a scruffy rock and roll band. And some songs are better than others, others, but it all feels real and authentic. And, uh, you know, Jagger's still fun to watch and... Ronnie Wood kind of did all the heavy list lifting, and yeah. Keith Richards kind of did some accents. And right, a lot of these bands, when they get old, they kind of replace all the musicians with a bunch of sidemen and stuff, but they're still kind of doing their thing. Yeah, I mean, there's the core four. I mean, you know, they, got, they have a replacement bass player, right. and then, you know, there's, there's a keyboard player that helps out and some backing vocalists and all that. But, I mean, yeah, it's still Charlie and Mick and Keith and Ronnie mm-hmm. doing the, the bulk of the work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, they're one of the two or three most important rock bands in the history of rock and roll. So if in fact Jazz Fest does have them booked for the 50th anniversary, that would be uh, quite a coup and quite a big deal. Biggest band to never play Jazz Jazz Fest, you figure? Yeah, in terms of bigness being, you know, legacy and number of decades they've been an important cultural force and their ability to still headline stadiums. Yes, yeah. this tour of the Stones are doing this spring is all stadiums. So you know, they're playing 40, 50, 60,000 people a night. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a big deal. Let's back up for a second. So you, uh, reported uh, just a few days ago that there was a delay in, in the announcement of the schedule this year. What it would, it, they were supposed to announce it, uh, in December. Now it's going to be January. What, what is that? Does it read the tea leaves on that for us? Yeah. I mean, normally they, in the last few years they've announced in January. So the fact that they were going to do it in December was kind of, was interesting. Uh, it seemed to indicate that they had everything in place. And that there was like some really big news that they wanted to get out there sooner rather than later, i.e. the band we just talked about could have been it. Um, so the fact that they delayed it generally probably means that there was still some last minute hold up with one of the big acts um, where, you know, something with the deal wasn't quite finalized or this particular artist wants to make an announcement about other dates or something in conjunction with Jazz Fest, uh, you know, it, it... They're not ready to announce it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the Jazz Fest is kind of beholden to some of these larger acts on how they want to 
release the information and, and roll it out. So mm-hmm. I'm sure it means that something wasn't quite locked down. Um, you know, and, and artists can get very upset about this sort of thing. You know, just this week, Neil Young put a statement out on his website uh, that he's very upset about the announcement of his participation in this festival in London this next summer. Um, he, you know, he said that that shouldn't have been announced yet. It wasn't entirely done. You know, he still had some questions about certain things and was still working on the art for the poster or something. So he was very upset about that and is making a big stink about it and may end up backing out of the festival. Hmm. So they don't want know, that to happen. Yeah, they don't want that to happen. Yeah. So, um, so and that festival happens to be produced by AG, which also co-produces Jazz Fest. So I'm sure they're very sensitive right now about um, making these announcements in a way that doesn't upset Screw the artists. Up. Right, gotcha. So um, you also reported on some of the other, uh, well, one other thing, logistically, so this is a jazz fest that's going to have an extra day, an extra Thursday, but it's a the prior Thursday. Now, the the middle Thursday, which has traditionally been the locals' day, that may be a little bit different this year, and that's the day that you're guessing may have the stones and it's not going to be covered by the brass pass and all. Is that right? Correct, right. The opening Thursday, they've added Thursday to the opening weekend, which they haven't had an opening Thursday since, I think, the early 90s. Um, that's going to be the locals' Thursday. So it's that'll be an especially low-key day because, you know, a lot of people probably have already made travel plans to come in for the Friday, so there won't right. be, everyone won't be in town for it yet, and so it will be a very small crowd on that opening Thursday, probably. The second Thursday, May 2nd, looks to be the actual big 50th anniversary celebration day where they're going to have this, a very different schedule, it sounds like, you know, uh, with possibly the Stones or some other big bands on the schedule. And it's going to be a different kind of ticket price and a a very different day. So that's kind of the bonus day. It just falls in the middle of the festival. And then let's just run through some of the other acts you said might you gave some odds on some different big names who might be coming here. You want to walk through those real quick? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, we mentioned Bob Seeger. You know, they were I think trying to get him last year. Seeger had back surgery. He kind of looks like based on the routing of the tour, he's going to actually make it this year because he's got a date in Houston, right around the uh, the Jazz Fest weekend. So generally, when you see that Houston date pop up right around Jazz Fest weekend, they're they're linking up with the show at Jazz Fest to. Right. The routing worthwhile to come through this part of the country. So I think there's a fairly good chance they'll finally get to see you. And this is his, what he's saying is his last tour. Mm-hmm. So if he was ever going to play the fest, now's the time. Yeah. It's now or nothing. Yeah. And then you mentioned Santana possibility. Carlos Santana, yeah, I think I called him Jazz Fest Comfort Food. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's one of those acts that's been coming for years. And you know, at a time, there was a time when Santana was like a huge name for the festival. I mean, right. Back when like B.B. King used to close out the main stage. Yeah. You know, last year's of his life, B.B. King was playing in a blues tent. Not that B.B. King has gotten to be less of an artist, just Jazz Fest has upped its entire roster of artists right. to get much bigger, more popular acts. Right. So Santana now, um, I mean, he might end up headlining Gentilly this time around, if in fact he is on the bill for this year. Yeah. But for the 50th anniversary, it makes sense to have some of these artists that have been mainstays of the festival over the years. Right. And, he's, and, he, and he's got that sort of world music flair that fits in. Like, I guess that's why you call them Jazz Fest comfort food. Yeah, and just he's like one of those guys that comes out there, he's always dependable. You know, he did yeah. stuff with the Neville Brothers. And, you know, he's just one of those guys that totally fits in with that Jazz Fest amalgamation of, of musical styles. Uh, and he's playing in Mississippi right around the time of Jazz Fest. Ah, so, so it's a hop, skip, and a jump. Sounds like a strong bet. Yes. Well, uh, that's about all the time we have, but you can read the rest of it in Keith's re- recent piece on our website. And uh, thanks, as always, for dropping by, Keith. You bet. Stay tuned. The big announcement now is January, but it'll, it'll be interesting because I never guess everybody. I never, <laughs> I, I, you know, I guess 10 people and there's going to be 500 <laughs> on the bill. So I didn't guess a whole lot at all, if I got them any of them right. Who knows? <laughs> all right. Thanks. 
The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.